How's it going, everybody? This, uh, Daniel described it as an obelisk. I like that. Um, there's something about this that kind of, it reminds me of um, that, like, great stone tablet in uh, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, <laughs> which is, um, I don't know, at least a little bit symbolic here and uh, not intentional, probably. But anyway, it, it's good to see you guys. I hope you guys are doing really well. Uh, today, honestly, um, kind of an exciting day, right? Just because celebrating baptism is, is such a, a great thing. Uh, you know, celebrating new life in Christ that we get to do um, and just gather together and witnessing um, really that commitment for some of these uh, young believers and stuff like that. And I'm sure he'll hear more about that later, but you know, there's nothing special about the water. There's nothing like holy about the water or anything like that. Uh, the water doesn't save you being baptized. We don't believe that that saves you. Uh, but what we do believe is that it's a command by Jesus to give this kind of outward expression of something that's already happened, like in somebody's life internally, uh, that they are dead to sin, you know, kind of as they go down and they are raised into new life with Christ because of their faith. And so it's pretty exciting that we get to celebrate that together, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so we'll, we'll get to talk more about that later. As for the teaching today, we're going to go continue on in this kind of short three-week series that we started last week. Uh, we called it Sent Church. Uh, the reason for this is there's this kind of natural progression, we thought, when we uh, took a look at Jesus coming into Jerusalem um, on Palm Sunday and then his death and resurrection, and then just kind of talking about, okay, so what happens next, right? What happens after Jesus uh, dies and resurrects from the grave? Um, and so what we see happen was that Jesus appeared to his disciples and effectively sent them out to the world uh, to share the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. And so for the next uh, well, really this week and next week, we're discussing uh, the next two rhythms. There are three rhythms in total uh, that we see in the early church as they were sent out. These are the upward, inward, and outward rhythms. They actually make up uh, a key component of our strategy, like all the things that we do kind of center around these three rhythms. And these rhythms are all about relationships. The first rhythm that we discussed last week is the upward rhythm. That's our relationship with God. Um, and just how important that is. Jesus, after he was resurrected, but before he ascends to heaven, uh, he tells his disciples to wait. He tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. But it's so important that you wait for the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my uh, witnesses to the whole world. Okay? To Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we just kind of saw how uh, foundational that rhythm is and how none of the other rhythms matter all that much if we aren't prioritizing our relationships with God. This is the relationship that we were designed to dwell in, and it's the relationship that Jesus came to restore. And so um, that was kind of what we discussed last week. And the other two rhythms are the inward rhythm and the outward rhythm. The inward rhythm is our relationships with other believers in Christ, other brothers and sisters in Christ. And the outward rhythm is our relationships with the world, those that are not believers. Today we're going to dive into the inward rhythm and just kind of discuss what it looked like in the early church to draw near to each other as believers in Christ. So uh, let's pray, and then we're going to dig into Acts 2. Father, God, you're so good to us, so we thank you for your scriptures and just how they point us to you, how they teach us about you, Lord, how we should engage with you, how we should live here on earth. Lord, we just pray that you would speak here today. We want you to speak, speak in a way that I can't, God, um, to all of us here. God, we know that your word is powerful, we know that your spirit is powerful, and we know that you're here with us. So, uh, God, we love you so much, we thank you for all those truths, and we pray this in your name. 
Amen. So we're going to be in Acts 2. Uh, we're going to start actually in Acts 2, 42, verses, uh, verses 42 through 47. So uh, it says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Okay, so um, uh, earlier in this chapter, well, earlier in Acts, really, Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the Spirit. And the Spirit comes upon them at the beginning of Acts 2, earlier in this chapter, uh, in what we call Pentecost, what uh, the Bible calls Pentecost. And in Pentecost, this wild thing happens where all the disciples start speaking in different languages, uh, and you could just tell that the, the power of the Spirit was with them, uh, enough that really everybody there that witnessed that thought that they were crazy. Uh, they even thought that they were drunk, okay? And so um, Peter gets up, and he preaches this just fiery sermon, you know, about, like, the, the gospel, and he kind of starts by talking about, hey, it's early in the morning, they didn't have anything to drink, like that would be ridiculous to, to think that, and, and he just starts to share the gospel with all these people, and many of them give their lives to Jesus, and, and just after this is where we find ourselves in the scripture that we just read, so when it says they devoted themselves at the beginning, that they um, is kind of referring to all these new believers as well as the disciples that, that were there, that had the spirit come on them. And so these short few verses give us a small snapshot of, uh, of what the early church looked like in terms of its community. They were really devoted to each other. They were devoted to each other. They were devoted to uh, the teachings about Jesus, to prayer. They were devoted to remembering Christ's sacrifice by breaking bread together. They were devoted to sharing in their belongings and making sure to meet together as a unified body. They were devoted in praising God together. And something I notice in the early church when I look at passages like this is that they are, they're not individualistic, which I think is really interesting. Like in our culture, we, we are all about the individual, right? Like chase your dreams, you know, type of thing. Do what you want. Even in, in the Christian world, you know, seek God's will for your life. But in the early church, this kind of mindset wasn't a thing. And of course, there's still some personal responsibility, like, like someone can't give their life to Jesus for you, right? So like you still have to make that decision on your own. Like you have some kind of personal agency there. But the early church was very much focused on God's kingdom and kind of doing that together, not, not this personal thing. They're focused on we, right? Not me, okay? Sometimes people in our church even has, have used the phrase like my ministry when talking about like, you know, the way that they are seeking to extend God's kingdom, my ministry. And I'm not a huge fan of that because there's no my in the early church. They worked together to extend God's kingdom and they didn't really seem to consider their personal dreams, their personal desires, things like this. It was very much a, what can we do? Like, where is God sending us type of thing? And so we see that the early church was very functionally different from what's common here in the United States. 
There are some things our church does really well, I would say. Like when we read through this, you may notice some things that like, wow, like I think we're kind of doing that. And I think there are some things that we can grow in, but one thing seems really clear to me. God's will for us and his plan for us in terms of pursuing him and pursuing his kingdom is a we thing, not a me thing. And so today we're going to spend some time looking into why that is, because I think there's immense and deep benefit to pursuing God together as a community. And so we're going to talk through three major themes that I see in the early church as they pursue God together. So um, the first thing is this, pursuing God together helps us see God's truth. So see God's truth. In Acts 2, 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so the cool thing about this is Peter had just gotten done preaching this, like, like I said, this fiery sermon to all these people. Uh, and, and they were really cut to the heart, and, and there was a lot going on there. Um, and, and I think that there's good in like being devoted to like hearing the preaching of the word and, and being devoted to, to really you know, trying to understand what the Bible says and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't think it's just like hearing the preaching of the word that they were devoted to, right? It's, I think that would be a, a wrong way to understand what they're talking about when they say that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. I think they were also just kind of devoted to the truth itself and devoted to applying that and that kind of being a foundation in their community. And so one of the scriptures that I thought of whenever I was, I was processing through this is in Deuteronomy 11. It says this, uh, the Lord kind of was speaking this to Israel. Imprint these words of mine on your hearts and minds. Bind them as a sign on your hands and let them be a symbol on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that as long as the heavens are above the earth, your days and those of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And so the Lord is really just telling Israel here to cling to his words, to cling to truth, to keep them close, to obey them, to live by them to talk about them with each other, to remind yourself of them constantly, to remind others of them constantly. And part of this is our own personal commitment to truth, um, that, you know, that we as individuals would be committed to like, knowing God's word and living that out. Uh, but, but you see, too, that as a community, the early church was really committed to this. They were committed to the word of God and committed to following God in truth, understanding truth and letting that guide them and direct them in their actions. And so uh, a few comments on, on, on the value of having a community that's committed to God's word, that's committed to his truth. Um, when you have a, commi- a community that's committed to God's word and to his teaching, you will be reminded of the truth of the gospel often. You're reminded of the truth of the gospel often. The gospel message is not something that we ever graduate from, right? The, the truth and reality that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ is something that we all need to come back to often. I know for me, I'm constantly needing to preach the gospel to myself over and over and over again because part of life is to, I think, just take notice of the areas where that's not present, right? Where I'm not living like that's true. Take notice of areas in my life that don't align with the gospel. The things that I do that don't make sense if the gospel is true, right? How I treat others, how I live, how I act, where I'm spending my time, how I love people. 
And, and we are, when we are around a community of believers that have the gospel as, as their foundation, they're kind of able to see and, and talk about and call out those, those things in us for our good and for the good of the community around us. And so there, there are like a few ways where I see that like, well, like the, the, the power of God's truth being in community, there are a few ways that I see that happening. The first is, is really through rebuke, um, right? So, so through this kind of like, calling out uh, in people. Um, Paul does this in Galatians 2. This is kind of the first example that I thought of. Um, he's talk, It's about, you know, Paul and Peter's relationship, really. Uh, so he says, when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, for he regularly ate with Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his, his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild the system I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I have died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And so Paul really demonstrates this, this kind of commitment to truth when he really he calls Peter out. He sees that like Peter's not living in a way that aligns with the gospel. Right? He's kind of doing this thing where he's making it clear by his actions that he maybe puts a little bit of stock in, in how he uh, follows the law, right? And, and that, that may be something that he thinks saves him or, or makes him a little bit better than. And that starts to bleed into the people around him. And so Paul's like, hey, that's not the truth. That's not the gospel. And he calls him out to his face. Can you imagine right, being Paul, not one of the original 12, and, and, and Peter who, you know, Jesus called like, you know, the rock of, of the church, and, uh, you know, Paul calls him out to his face, right, in front of all these other, other people. Why? Because for, Paul, for Peter's good, and it's for the good of the church. And so sometimes this kind of accountability comes in the form of rebuke, like Paul did to Peter here, uh, which might have felt embarrassing for Peter, but it was for his good and for the good of the church. Other times it comes in the form of challenge. Uh, Philippians 1.27 says this, Just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, and there are some times where I've needed this, and, and it's not just, by the way, not just the kind of challenge that comes in form of words, but even in the form of action that I think kind of leads me to truth, right? So when I see other people around me living like the word of God is true, that is challenging to me. It's challenging me, and it points me back to the truth in the word of God, right? It drives me towards the truth that we see in the gospel, and it helps me to consider myself if I'm living in light of these things. So you got rebuke, you got challenge, and then sometimes it's in the form of encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Sometimes, right, it, it could be kind of the opposite of, of the challenge aspect. 
right? Like where we call out areas where we see people really living in light of the gospel, right? Areas where we see God working, right? That we may be encouraged to, to continue on and to continue to pursue Jesus with all of our hearts. And so in all things, as we pursue Christ together, if his truth is our foundation, it's going to have this kind of dramatic impact on our community. You will see that in the lives of your brothers and sisters. As we are drawing near together, we will naturally hear truth more. We will understand truth more. It will be on our lips. It will result in us believing truth more. And we know that that will result in the furthering of the kingdom and in greater depth in our relationship with Christ. So that's the first thought. Pursuing God together helps us see God's truth. The second thought is this. Pursuing God together helps us see God's power. Helps us see God's power. Acts 2 says this. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues, like flames of fire that were divided, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages, as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused, because each one of them heard speaking heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? So, clearly, uh, these people had an experience where they got to see and experience God's power together. Right? They got to see and experience God's power together. So, two things of note here. First, this doesn't happen apart from the Spirit of God. Right? It doesn't happen apart from God's Spirit. Maybe that's obvious, but this wasn't like you know, these people were making this happen. And then second, if they weren't together, they would have missed out on seeing God's power in action. Okay? The Lord has gifted his people in all kinds of different ways. And these gifts are meant to encourage, they're meant to build up, they're meant to spur us on in our relationships with God. And you'll notice here that upon witnessing this, this, this miracle, it had an impact on people. They were astounded and perplexed is what it says. It had an impact on them. And so, like I said a minute ago, this doesn't happen apart from God's spirit. And what's significant about this is that we don't get to see God's power just because we gather. All kinds of people gather together and miss out on God's power all the time. But as we learn to follow God, as we learn to be spirit-led people, as we learn to obey him in faith, we have an opportunity more and more as we gather together to witness God's power in new ways. And, and to be clear, I want to be really clear about this, God's power is not just found in the tongues of fire. 
Like, like that's an aspect of it, right? Seeing miraculous things like that, but it's in all of his giftings. Later in this, in this chapter, Peter gives a fiery sermon as he was inspired by the Spirit, and it says this just afterwards. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction. Like some translations translate that as uh, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Would you not be so excited about God's power after hearing Peter's sermon and just seeing this happen around you? Seeing these people that were clearly in this deep conviction, they were cut to the heart. These kinds of experiences, experiencing God's power, seeing God's power in the lives of each other and through each other are meant to do two things. They're meant to develop worship in us as we are reminded of God's greatness and his holiness and as a result, to encourage us to pursue him all the more, okay? To develop worship in us as we, as we are reminded of God's greatness and his holiness, and to encourage us, as a result, to pursue him all the more, right? Seeing God's power, it's intended to develop wonder among us, a wonder that inspires us to worship him more and love him more. And I'm not talking just about singing, right? Worshiping him with our lives, with our words, when we see God moving in crazy ways, we become more enamored with who he is, and as a result, we understand the insanity that is God's love. This kind of God, this is the one that loves me. A being like this, one who works in and through people by his spirit, who is also the creator of the universe, that's the God that loves us, that wants a relationship with us. That's insane. We see God's power through each other. But if we're trying to pursue God alone and not as a community, I think that we're going to miss out on seeing God in this way. We miss out on seeing God empower each other by his spirit. We miss out on, on learning more about his character through his body. We miss out on seeing him work in unique ways through his people. We will miss out on seeing his power. We will miss out on great, having a greater sense of awe and worship and love for him. Pursuing God together helps us see God's power. And this leads me to my last point. Pursuing God together helps us see God's love. Helps us see God's love. Uh, and so in continuing to go through Acts 2 together, I wanted to at least share one area where I saw this in Acts 2, uh, verses 44 through 46. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude. And so when I read this, it seems clear, like, they loved each other. They were willing to sacrifice for each other, right? Like, they actively pursued each other in love and in community. Like, this gives us a snapshot, I think, of what God's love is like for us, but my favorite piece of scripture that talks about this is in 1 John 4, and I really want to dig into this. 
First John 4 says this, uh, verses 10 through 12, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Have you ever thought about this? In, in John 1 and here in 1 John 4, John uh, says this thing. He says, nobody's ever seen God, uh, which is a little strange because there are a lot of places in Scripture that seem to indicate that some people have seen God, <laughs> okay? In, in Numbers, I'm just going to run through a few of them. Numbers 12, Listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Exodus 24. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Isaiah 6. This is a vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Genesis 17.1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty, live in my presence and be blameless. And these are not the only places in Scripture that this happens. So what is John talking about? Why does he say this? And, and honestly, more specifically, why does he say this in the context of talking about love in 1 John 4? He's giving some instruction on love, and then he just says, no one's ever seen God. Love people. It's like, what? What are you talking about? I think John is saying that nobody has seen the Father in his fullness, except for, for Jesus, of course. But second, I think he's making a point that one of the most major ways we see and experience God's love is through other believers. It's through other believers. And I don't mean to say that God is some kind of metaphor for love or something like that. It's not what I'm getting at. God is real. He's living. He's alive. Uh, but what John is saying is that a major part of how God shows his love to people is through other people that are empowered by his spirit. We are intended to experience God's love through other believers. Many of the times where I have experienced and understood God's love in the fullest ways have been as a result of other believers in Christ showing me his love through word and through action. I believe that I understand the love of Christ more as a result of living in deep community with other believers, as a result of pursuing God with other followers of Christ. And so, one example of this uh, is through my wife, Lindsay. Um, and, and although, before I even share that story, I, I just want to be clear that I've had many more experiences just like this with, with other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just like a marriage thing, okay? This has happened to me, you know, in the context of community in a lot of different ways. But this one felt particularly powerful, so I decided to share it. So, after Lindsay and I had been dating for a while, um, at one point, uh, I, I sat her down to talk about something that was really vulnerable for me. 
because we were starting to seriously consider marriage together. In my mind, I wanted her to, to know about this before we got engaged, right? And the reason for that is because I wanted her to have an out, right? I wanted her to understand something about me before she made a serious decision about continuing, you know, in this relationship together. And so, you know, I wanted to sit her down and talk about this thing. And at the time, the thing that I wanted to talk to her about was that I was still pretty addicted to pornography, okay? It was something I'd been working on for a long time, something I was honestly beginning to, to get serious help for. Uh, you know, I was going to a counselor every week that specializes in stuff like this. I was going to these addiction recovery groups, you know, every week. I was actively pursuing help in this area, um, but what I told her was that my experience has been that over the years, no matter how hard I tried, I never experienced being completely and utterly free from this issue. That was my experience at the time. Even if I would be free from it for months at a time, it always seemed to find its way back into my life. And so what I told her was this. I said, I can promise you effort in this area. Like I can promise that I'll, I'll make a serious effort in pursuing wholeness, in pursuing purity, but that's all that I can promise. I said, I can't promise you that I'll be ever free from this. And that was just speaking from, from kind of the raw emotions in my heart, you know, what I was feeling, okay? I'm not saying that's true. That's what I felt is that like, man, I've not experienced freedom from this no matter how hard I try. And I was just like, listen, I can promise that I'll pursue uh, effort in this area, but I can't promise freedom. And what she told me in response to that rocked me to my core. And I'll never forget it. Uh, and it's one of the clearest pictures of God's love that I have ever experienced. I told her, I can promise you effort, but I can't promise you I will ever be free from this. And she said, then I will pray for you forever. And she held my hand and she hugged me and she got out of my car so that I could go home and process. And I got home, and I just broke. Like, I just wept in my car. I was and am broken and in need of a Savior. I was then. I still am now. And that day, and, and plenty of others, I've experienced the love of my Savior through his people. I understood that, that man, like, Christ loves me like that. Like, he loves me despite my sin. And, and he shows us that through people that love him and through people that have his spirit. Our most important relationship in the world is our relationship with Jesus. But without going deep in our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ, we will have a serious lack in our understanding of his truth, in our experience of his power, and most importantly, our understanding and experience of his love. My prayer for us is that we would draw near to God, but that we would draw near to him together as a body of Christ, that would be deeply committed to Christ, but committed to him as a church and committed to pursuing him as a body. 
And I just hope that you, th- you see through this passage and uh, really through what we're talking about today, it's not cliche to say that we need each other. God intentionally provided the church for the good of his people. Right? Like As we pursue God, we have an opportunity to, to really minister it to each other and push each other closer to him. That we may understand him better and experience him more. And so that, that's my prayer for us, guys. Like, I, I hope that you see that through the scripture. Our inward relationships are so important. It's a key part of our church. I hope that you've seen that as you've gotten involved. And so may we be a people that draw near together as we draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, um, God, I just thank you for how you love us. I thank you for your church. I thank you that you provided us with each other so that we may know you and love you more. That we may experience your truth, understand your truth, believe your truth. God, that we may see and experience your power by your spirit. God, that that would stir up in us affection and wonder for you. God, and that we may experience your love through each other as well. God, I know that these aren't the only ways that you work, but God, I know that you work really primarily through people, by your spirit. There's a reason you gave us your spirit, Lord. May we be people that draw near together as we draw near to you, Lord. Give us the strength, give us the understanding. Help us to do this and be committed to this. God, we love you. God, we thank you for loving us first, just as we saw in 1 John. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.